Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in studio, joined by Murray Kinsel of the 42. How are you, Murray? I'm great, how are you? Very well, thank you. And Birch is in the house. Bernard Jackman, how are you, Bernard? Excellent, thank you. Very good. We've got an absolutely stacked show coming up. Uh, we'll be looking at what is next for the Ireland Sevens team, looking at in great detail at the breakdown and the intricacies there and some of the uh, rumours about certain aspects of the breakdown being outlawed that Murray Kinsella is going to dispel later on. Uh, we'll also be looking ahead to the four provinces, fairly crucial games uh, at the weekend in the Pro 14, maybe not quite crucial for Leinster, but could prove crucial for Munster, that one. Um, but there's only really one place to start, I think, uh, if you're joining us in the afternoon and haven't been looking at your phone or perusing the news um that boy Israel Folau is in the news again, uh, for starters. Uh, it looks like he's going to be sacked uh, by the Australian Rugby Union uh, for a post on Instagram in which he denounced homosexuality, among other things. Um, obviously, he's got previous in this department. Just to start with, uh, parts of the statement that were released, uh, that was released rather, by the Australia or Rugby Australia CEO Raylene Castle and also the New South Wales Rugby Union CEO Andrew Hoare. Uh, it says Rugby Australia and the New South Wales Rugby Union have made repeated attempts to contact Israel both directly and via his representatives since 6.30pm on Wednesday and at this point he has failed to communicate directly with either organisation. Um, it goes on to say Israel has failed to understand that the expectation of him as a Rugby Australia and New South Wales Waratahs employees that he cannot share material on social media that condemns, vilifies or discriminates against people on the basis of their sexuality. Um, it mentions that as a code, we have made it clear to Israel formally and repeatedly that any social media posts uh, or commentary that is disrespectful will result in disciplinary action. And also says, and this is the kicker really, uh, in the absence of compelling mitigating factors, it is our intention to terminate his contract. Uh, this is pretty insane, Murray. Yeah, it's pretty sensational stuff. I mean, a guy that many would argue is the best rugby player in the world and probably key to Australia's hopes in the, the World Cup this year, um, seemingly now going to be out of the picture completely. Um, for me, it's a really strong and the right decision from Rugby Australia. I really did not expect this, certainly so swiftly. Um, and it's kind of incredible the fact that they haven't been able to get in touch with him. Um, you know, either through the Waratahs or through the Australian national team coaches or anyone hasn't been able to get their hands on them. I just see now actually Rugby Players Australia put out a statement saying that while they don't endorse or condone Folau's posts, they say it's imperative that the proper process is followed under the Code of Conduct, obviously in regards to contracts. So I think this one is going to roll on a little bit. Um, the, the intention is to sack him. And I think that would be a decision if followed through upon would be strongly supported the, the condemnation of his posts has been really widespread um, and he's had as you mentioned before he's had an opportunity and they put it in his latest contract that he, ca he can't put this kind of stuff up on on the internet whatever his beliefs are and um, so yeah i don't think this is the end of it i think we're in for a bit of a saga here but i'd congratulate rugby australia on on making a strong move yeah it's going to be a difficult one for them to roll back on bernard if they are going to do that and it's it just seems unlikely on the basis that even when they mention mitigating factors, 
those factors have to be compelling uh, in order for them to to make any decision which results in him remaining in contract with them. Absolutely. I think, you know, I commend uh, the Australian Rugby Union and the Waratahs for the really strong leadership they've shown. So often we see um, organisations or government bodies fudge around around this. And, um, you know, it's interesting the Rugby Players Australia, you know, saying, oh, it has to go through process. And that process would be, you know, official hearings, the HR process, which could, could take a while. But the reality is I don't think there's any way back from this. I mean, what mitigating circumstances realistically can come up? He's, he's had past... Um, Past experience of of stepping out of line on this, he's been um, there's been a clause put in his contract warning him about future um, issues, and, and I just think I just think it's a really strong statement. Best player in the world or not, you know you've got to um, you've got to have have better moral morals and, and better values, and, and and you know stick to um, adhere to the rules. Um, and he's blatantly gone against the grain, so um, you know I think. I think he'll be gone. I, I, it'll take a while, probably, but I can't see how he can play for Australia in the World Cup, um, given given what he's done. Yeah, yeah. and, and would, would some of his teammates want to play with him? You know, yeah, David I, Pocock is kind of accepting him back into the group, but someone who has really strong beliefs and would absolutely hate this kind of hate, hate speech from from Flair, but. Now, what does teammates want him back? Well, in? listen, Pocock is, is probably an exception that he's been he's willing to speak openly about his views and, and his frustrations with Israel in the past, etc. But the majority of players wouldn't wouldn't want him, but they will never come out and say it. So that's why I think um it's great that the you know the governing body and the and the, the leadership have taken the stand because it's very difficult as a player in a dressing room to um to isolate another player and and you know and really be um uh, forthright with your with your views um especially someone like him who's such a star and potentially is, is a strong personality um but I think that's the, I don't think the players would want to play with him but also I, I think it's better that you know I said the management um you know look after um, internal discipline and, and um, up, uphold the, the values of the game, which he's, he's completely, um, you know, ignoring and, and acting against. Do you really think the players wouldn't want to play with him? Even I don't think if, so. even if nah, they strongly too, disagree much. with the views. No, I think it's too much. I think um, I think the players would respect his his right to have his own views, but I mean the problem is he's got massive influence, potential influence over hmm. over people across the world because of the fact he's a very good rugby player. Hmm. And that's uh, that's unfortunate. Doesn't mean he knows the right and wrong, um, but he could potentially influence um you know, people who are or at the stage of making their own mind up around what's right and wrong. And that's you know that, that's that's that, that that would be for me the big issue, and I think players, I think players wouldn't wouldn't want to play with him, no, because um, it's not right what the way you know the the stuff he's he's um, promoting. Yeah, it will roll on as you mentioned, and it will come back to one of those sort of themes that's quite prevalent, and it'll be rolled out in the media about free speech and what you can say, and oh, we can't say anything anymore, and he's entitled to his beliefs and all of that kind of stuff that we hear constantly, but like free speech entitles you to say what you want it doesn't entitle you to escape the consequences of what you say Hmm. like by definition free speech entitles somebody else to think you're an absolute melon for having that opinion yeah Uh, you can say that yes there is religious beliefs um cool they're warped you know some religious beliefs are just not right like not everything is correct they're still right and wrong it's just this uh this fascinating thing that people believe because of free speech you can just be impervious to any criticism it doesn't work that way and also it's in his contract that he can't do this. Like the, the statement from, from Australia says they've warned him formally and repeatedly in any other walk of life. If, if I walked into this office and started spouting hate speech or, or anything like that, 
maybe there'd be a warning first, but if I did it again, I'd be at the door. Yeah. He's an employee. Yeah. And like, regardless of your religious beliefs, his comments, they're actually dangerous. You know, that kind of level of homophobia from someone who is such a big role model and such a powerful presence in, in Australian sport across the board. He's been in three professional sports. It's just dangerous, you know? Well, um, also, you will see him described in in various uh, media outlets as a devout Christian or, or harboring devout Christian beliefs. That's not a part of Christianity, or at least most strands of it. Like, you'd think if God hated gay people, he might have included in his top 10 things not to do list, don't be gay. But instead, he was kind of more concerned about his own name than being sound to your neighbor. Like, it's it's just a warped view. Yeah, and I think most people are, are in agreement with that. Obviously, there are going to be some who disagree and feel, listen, he's just expressing his views, whatever. You have to kind of question, wh- what the hell is he doing here? And why has he been quiet since? Why is he uncontactable? Why isn't he trying to fight for his contract, knowing that he was was breaking those rules? Um, and you kind of wonder what's going to happen next with him. Is he trying to get out of his contract? Why is he clearly, so clearly broken the rules that they set out uh, for him? Um, he, like, you wouldn't, wouldn't know what the background is. I think that he knew... Um, he's he's got a team of advisors around him. He knew when he put that tweet up, it was going to be very uh, very touch and go whether he yeah. survives. So potentially, potentially there's more to this than than meets the eye. Potentially there's a there's a rugby league contract. But, you know, maybe he wants to have a go at a, a, NFL. Like who knows? That'll all come out. But uh, I I don't think it's just um, he did that and didn't understand the consequences of it. You know, if if they are if they are you and and the war has, you know, have issued him with the warnings and, and uh, the clarity around what he can and can't do. You know, he, he, he had to have known uh, that this was going to test the validity of his contract. And, you know, uh, potentially he, he doesn't care. He's going to give up being a freshman athlete. But someone like him, unfortunately, might be in high demand in other places. Well, uh, that's the know. thing. It could work out in his favour financially. financially. Absolutely. You could wind up Yeah, in, but who cares? That's Listen, um, I still think... You know, you can't you can't have the argument. Oh, we're not going to release him his contract because we don't want him to benefit financially. You're just going to say, okay, what's the right and wrong thing to do here? The wrong thing to do is keep him having playing the World Cup and still part of our game. The right thing to do is is cut him loose and and best look to him. Let someone else look worry about him. Oh well, like the Wallabies have made the right decision. Now it's up to somebody else to make the right decision as well. Their yeah, own right decision. Yeah, they sure. won't, and that might happen. You know, you look at there's been a lot of issues in in NRL uh, Australian Rugby League around discipline, around poor behaviour. And the talented athletes always get taken back. You know, the the average Joes get put on the scrap, scrap heap. But, you know, he's someone who can win games for clubs. Um, so it's up to the, you know, the coaches and the boards of, of those clubs to decide, you know, whether they want to carry that baggage with them for the sake of results. And, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Christianity, the Archbishop of Banterbury, James Haskell, has been among those to condemn Falau. Uh We've also <laughs> heard from... Uh, Michael Leach, or uh, yeah, sorry, Michael Leach, the uh, Japan captain, has called him out uh, yeah, like really? one of those YouTube videos of old. Uh, yeah. Step out and, and what fight? Well, he wasn't. He didn't quite go that far, but he did say, uh, "Israel Flower, I'm calling you out." He described the comments as outrageous and uh, really goes in on him. Um, I saw Joe Marler was was replying to the uh, or sending Flower tweets with gifts of uh, men kissing so there is Gareth Thomas obviously had uh, quite a poignant uh, message in response to it on the flip side of that I think one of the minor storylines that come out of it may be the fact that certain players uh, and we won't name them liked the post and it could be yeah. a little bit of a, a subplot that that could be rolled out in the coming weeks um, 
Yeah. It's just dangerous. People need to be careful what they're liking. It's a very, you could look at, like I'm looking at the, the post here and you could just, the way Instagram works, you could be scrolling up or down, you could see a, the list of things Falao is condemning, adultery, theft, uh, and think, yeah, no, he's right. Uh, those people do deserve to go to hell. Like it and then see, oh no, he said homosexuals as well. And it's it's just a minefield potentially for, for people who... Uh, did yeah, get involved there. I think there's probably a certain element of mindlessness in that. People scrolling, liking, scrolling, liking, not even lo- looking at it. I see it all the, every day on the loose when I'm coming in. <laughs> People just scrolling, like and they're not even looking at it. Um, but uh, hopefully there's no one else in there who's ag- agreeing with those sentiments. Um, I think you can read a lot into it without knowing exactly whether yeah. that person was conscious of what they were actually clicking uh, and liking. But... No, you don't want to see that. And no. people be very wary of any future Israel flow posts. Absolutely. I th- I've seen a few people as well express their concern at the sheer number of people who liked it. But you have to take into consideration as well that a lot of people will see him going off on one and be like, ah, he's at it again. And just like it as in laughing at him. You know what I mean? It, a like doesn't mean much yeah. in this day and age. We've really. got another podcast in this maybe, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything anything more to be said about flow? It's... It, it, as you as you mentioned, there's going to be a lot more strands to this. Yeah. I think it will roll on. I, I suppose it is worth discussing just the impact in Australia. I mean, Michael Checkin must be looking at this and just pulling his hair out or what's left of it. Uh, mm. It's absolutely, it's a cruel blow. Yeah, well, they're losing one of the best fullbacks in the world. Um, a guy whose aerial skills are unprecedented. Really, his ability to get off the ground is just exceptional. He became the top try scorer in Super Rugby just uh, just very recently and. Um, is an absolute weapon in attack um, and just early you know you can build a game plan around that really the Warriors has increasingly done that so if he's not there yeah it's a, a major blow to them um, coming into to a massive tournament and they had been I think they'd been assembling a nice squad there and um, making some moves with their, their coaching team as well and Cheka would have felt that things were kind of coming together and um, to get this news I guess for him is just a, a massive blow Yeah I think it's I think Australia are in a pretty tricky uh, period now because I know Michael's looking for a, for a new attack coach, but I think of all the you know the top tier countries, um, bar potentially something happening with France with Galtier, you know everyone else seems to have their their coaches locked in um, for for the World Cup. So it's going to be a pretty short period, and he's he's had some he's had some rejections in terms of who he wants to bring in. The ARU have put Scott Johnson in kind of above him with um with a, a sane selection, um, which you know usually. Um, Something like that happens two or three years out, and and all the all the issues are, are probably sorted out, and the personality clashes, and you know the power struggle has happened before a World Cup, so that's obviously um, something that they got to sort out pretty quickly. With only one, you know, with, with a certain amount of games to go, and now they lose their potentially their best player. So um, you know, it's not easy. I think Australia, being head coach of Australia, is a difficult job at the moment with just the way. Um, uh, they're finding it so hard to compete with the other codes but I feel for, for Czech a, a lot in terms of this disruption that he has with very little time to fix it So a fantastic end of the season for the Ireland Sevens team uh, nice scenes with Harry McNulty at the final whistle and um, a magnificent achievement and uh, Murray I suppose it's kind of a broad question to begin with and we said it at the start but what is next for this group certainly on uh, an upward trajectory yeah well the short-term goals now immediately um they're going to go and play the paris and london sevens again as an invitational team and they're going to try and qualify for the uh, 2020 olympics which is going to be 
for me, even more difficult than what they've achieved. I think, yeah, it is a magnificent achievement. Some incredible work over the last, uh, since 2015, when they relaunched in Division C. Uh, they played a tournament over in Bosnia. And actually, as you mentioned, Harry McNulty, he was there. Mark Roach was there. Yeah, guys like Adam Byrne and Tom Daly, who is now signed for Connacht, actually. Some, some pro players there as well. Um, so it has been a, a pretty incredible journey, but I feel that this achievement has been coming and certainly last year was a, a failure not to probably get through the competition onto the series given the increased kind of spend on, on Sevens rugby from the RFU. So um, yeah, it's been it's been a, a great journey to follow and really great credit to the players for, for sticking at it. Um, so the 2020 Olympics would be huge again and to be... Like obviously being on the on the World Seven series is going to garner a lot of attention uh, for for Sevens rugby in Ireland, but to be in the Olympics would probably be even on another scale. Um, they've got a European qualifying competition in July in Colombia in France. That's going to be really difficult because you'll have England are currently outside the top four on this on the series, so they may be trying to qualify through that competition. Um, Spain and France will also be trying to get through there. Um, the winner goes forward into the Olympics and the next two teams go into a, a world repechage tournament. So Ireland would have to finish top three, which even in that tournament is a difficult ask. I think they, went, they get through there. They went out in the quarterfinals of that in ahead of the Rio Olympics, wasn't it, in Monaco? They they made it to the world repechage uh, in, in, in 2016, as it was, yeah. But went out in the quarterfinals to Spain. So that is a tricky path as well, but that'll be the next focus for the group. Um, then they get... Oh, they get August off. They'll play the Rugby Europe competition as well and try and defend their title there. Get August off. And from September onwards, they're preparing for the World 7 Series, which is an unbe- unbelievable thing to be preparing for, for this group of players who, like last weekend squad bar um, Hugo Keenan, are, are not attached to the provinces. So this is their focus. And like l- looking at some of those um, destinations like Cape Town and Dubai and... Uh, I hope that Adrian Russell, our editor, is going to send us over to cover those legs. Podcast uh, live, yeah, from. definitely. <laughs> Bernard, you're invited too. Thank you. Yeah, um, but that is—it's such a cool thing for them to do, um, and such a, a a big thing in their rugby careers as well. Um, and I guess off the field, it's going to be interesting to see how the game is embraced here. You know, as soon as they relaunched in, in 2015, I was kind of thinking, "Wow, a, a leg in Dublin at some stage if we get in the series could be really cool." And with our ability to throw a good party in Dublin as well, um, it might be a, a highlight of, the, of the, the series. So there's loads in it, but it is an exciting time. And, and really, I guess the journey's kind of just getting started. Yeah, that you mentioned there, it's a cool thing to do. And we were just speaking before we came on air, Bernard, about that. Like for a lot of the younger players in particular, you're getting to see these amazing places around the world. You're playing a game you enjoy playing. It's kind of... Um, uh, there's an unrefined uh, joy to it when it's going right. It's just taken a while to get to this point where it has. Then you look at the likes of um, Harry McNulty, we mentioned I think he was released by Munster in 2014. Uh, like the likes of Billy Dardis, he finished up a couple of years ago with Leinster. So it's a, just an amazing opportunity to kind of perpetuate a career in, in a slightly different form. But now they're part of something that actually could transpire to be quite special. Yeah, it's going to increase our, um, I suppose, the 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 player opportunities for, for players. So you have guys like Dardis and McNulty who gave it a go at 15s, um, didn't work out, but they can still be pro athletes and represent our country. And um, now they're going to do it on the biggest stage. They've been doing it, in fairness to them, um, you know, in front of a couple of hundred people in, you know, outreaches in Eastern Europe and on glamorous competitions, but they've, they've battled incredibly hard. They haven't got anything, you know, easily. So you'll have guys like that who will be the, the core group. And then I think you'll see... 
you know, um, really talented uh, young players whose probably futures in the 15s been been given that opportunity as a as a way of having them experience playing in front of I don't many people it was in Hong Kong was it 10, 15,000 yeah, the crowd atmosphere was phenomenal you know high pressure preparing for um, to be able to play cool down go again analysis uh, getting your body right so it, it, it's it's a really good way of um, of, of use of, of developing players in, in a different environment for example in, you know in the Dragons we sent Tane Basham you know, rather than play um, some Pro 14 games, we felt for him to go to um, go to New Zealand to play a leg and Sydney to play a leg was right for him in terms of his development. Now we, we know he's going to be a 15s player, and we you know, and the Dragons think he's going to be a star. And um, but it was just in his player development plan. You know what was best for him. He'd already played under 20s World Cup. He'd already played under 26 Nations, even being underage again. And we just felt, well, listen, that's some exposure that he needs to get. So I think what you're going to see is with Anthony Eddy and, and David Nusifora, um they'll get a core group of sevens players. But I think then you'll see um, some some really talented young players being given an opportunity to play on that for a whole season, two seasons, part of a season as a way of, I suppose, developing them further. And uh, um, it's, I think it's brilliant for us. I think a, a World Series in Dublin would be phenomenal, but um, just for this group of players, they deserve the right now to go and play on that series for, for a year and, and enjoy it. And I think they're good enough to um, to cause some shocks. You know, France got to the, I watched quite a bit of it, France got to the final, you know, last week and some, some tournaments you watch France and you go, you know, <laughs> should even be there. But yeah. um, there can be very strange results, you know, um, in, in sevens, uh, much, much more so than in, in 15 so they're a good side and um, they can go and actually you know cause uh, get some wins yeah because yeah. the bounce of the ball is even more magnified yeah. and if, the team gets, if you get a if you get a head start it's very hard to catch up you know yeah um i, I think that's a really interesting point about the 15 side of it news who is the kind of key figure behind this he came in and this is one of his big things straight away let's get the sevens going couldn't really understand how ireland didn't have that involvement but you've even seen it recently, like Jimmy O'Brien, Shane Daly, Robert Balakoon last season were kind of three of the stars and have now obviously impressed with their provinces as well uh, and look like they're going to be really good 15s players. It's definitely key, that core of sevens special. Yeah, though, you do it? need you to have, see it on the series. Yeah, you need to have guys. And first, that's why Ireland have got, gone well because yeah. like McNulty, Dardis, etc. They've learned the game tactically, fitness-wise. They've built it up, communication. And they can, ha- they can uh, I suppose, uh, adopt four or five new players coming in but you need to have I would say six core guys and obviously two of them probably be injured all the time who are in that squad who are specialist sevens players and they help the youngsters come in and get them up to speed you know quickly yeah they have around like 10 guys are on contracts sevens yeah. contracts at the moment they're not the most lucrative rugby contracts around and that side of it's going to be interesting to see how how much more resource Ireland push into this because there are if you have like the sevens budget is obviously men's and women's and the women's um, had a had an achievement last time out in Sydney getting into to the top four for the first time really impressed us up but if you look at it in 2013-14 season they spent 120 grand on sevens last season they spent 483 grand yeah. so I'd imagine it's this season has been even more because they had camps in South Africa Spain, Italy in the lead up to Hong Kong really well prepared they've signed um, Alan Temple-Jones he, he's the SNC guy he came over from South Africa sevens um, and they've put that kind of resource behind it as well. It's going to be interesting to see how that's reflected, I guess, in the players' contracts now. You know, 18,000 to be on the series and and commit even more time to training and, and travelling and, and all that side. Um, 
you know they'll definitely they, spend more Murray but there'll also be um, a bigger uh, a bigger payment from World Rugby by being on the circuit yeah and I know there's a lot of off field stuff you know so for example you know if you know Ireland are going to be in Hong Kong every year you know you can tap into the, the Irish expat community you can have a, a corporate lunch uh, I know that some of the teams like England etc are very good at actually fundraising um, around that because those those expats never get the opportunity to to sit down with the English senior team if you understand you know what I mean so mm. you, because it's a little bit of a smaller um, less higher profile sport you can you know you can get revenue through access um, that I think the IRFU will definitely look at so even though there'll be much bigger costs in terms of contracts more travel etc um, there's a bigger payment back from from World Rugby for being on the series 7 series proper plus there's you know added commercial opportunities out there that um, I'm sure they'll tap into. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting just sevens rugby in general because I'd imagine a lot of Irish people maybe hadn't even watched the tournament until last weekend and realised okay these guys are going to achieve something, and you realise how much fun it is to watch. Um, the fun of being there is probably the party more than the rugby. At times you're wondering if they're actually looking down on the pitch, <laughs> but that's another story. It is just going to be it's going to be interesting to see how that explodes, I guess, and and whether people kind of engage with sevens that way as well as participation and whether they are if you try and get a, a few more kind of senior sevens competitions linked into some sort of league or, or, or something like that they've pressed that side of it saying sevens is easier to pick up come in and enjoy yourself without having the I guess the subtleties and the the lack of space in, in, in a 15s game relatively speaking so they've done that with girls rugby and in schools as well so that's an interesting side of it as well and this might be the start of the, the revolution yeah the revolution. Don't mind your World Series like in Dublin. Come down to Kinsale for the weekend. I mean, <laughs> Great <laughs> crowd. <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. Um, okay, let's talk about the breakdown and some of the suggestions recently that the Jackals days may be numbered. Murray Kinsale, you were saying that's not the case. Yeah, I think this came, the, the story seems to be that the, the World Rugby Law Symposium in, in Paris um, spent some time talking about getting the Jackal out of the game. Like, unless I fell asleep for that section with that didn't happen it wasn't discussed um, was lucky enough to be over there and there was loads of different law suggestions and tweaks but that really didn't come up and I think taking the jacket out of the game would be absolute madness while, while there have been unfortunately a couple of injuries and certainly recently we'll probably talk about that side of it um, it's a really thrilling part of the game both in terms of the skill itself the contest which is such a crucial part of rugby we always want contests in all, in all elements um, and then the ability to to break up the game and and play, I guess, unstructured rugby in that sense, Bernard. It's a it's a massive. Yeah, listen, it's it's already very difficult to to actually um, win a turnover from a jackal. So those guys, when we see it, we we laud them. The Peter Mahonies, the you know the Russos, etc. The 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 Francois Lowe's, um, and they have a special skill set. Um, but the reality is, the most of the most of the, the most dangerous part of, of jackling is the cleanout. That's where the that's where the real injuries are coming from. So if they're going to talk about the law changes, well then the effort needs to actually referee um, the actual cleanout for people trying to um, get rid of the jackler rather than the actual jackal threat. So I think they're actually well, the, this come from a um, from a journalist who's and it's just basically taken off. But the reality is, if if they want to make the game safer, they need to police the cleanouts better. And actual fact is, they did. Jackaling would be more successful. There'd be more turnovers. The game would be more exciting. Um, if you take away the jackal, the, you know a team will hold the ball for seven or eight minutes, uh, and you've no chance of getting it back. And I actually think it'll become more dangerous because then, you know, from a coaching point of view, you'd say, okay, well, the only way we can get the ball back is to tackle higher and tackle the ball. Um, so you'd have two guys hitting the ball at chest level, which 
is your margin for error then is is less than obviously the chop tackle, and you're going to have higher tackles, you're going to have bigger impacts, high, so you'll have whiplash injuries for the ball carrier. It'll um, end up as a game of sevens by the end of it, if, yeah, because it be. there'll be so many records. Yeah, so I think um, I think the jackal is 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 an important part of the game. It's as Murray said, you know, the whole idea of the game is that everything's a contest. Um, but the, the problem is that people are allowed to come in off their feet, no arms um, from the, from the side. And that's causing the injuries and the, and the high impacts. Um, but for some reason, the focus has been on the guy who's actually in there doing what's legal. You know, it's actually legal to go in and jackal um, once. Obviously, you, you know, there's no rook exception, and you're and you've released our second man in. But the problem is, they're letting so much go from uh, from the attacking point of view that that's where the injuries are coming from. Mm. I think there's so many strands to this as well. Like, um, I agree with Bernard. There's the clear out invariably at any any breakdown now really you can probably pick out something that's technically against the laws of the game I do think it probably starts with the jackal um, and I, I love the contest but I feel that it's so hard to pick up on a jackal who's not quite in control of their feet there's so many hands down in front mm. of the ball kneeling on, on, on the tackled player leaning on their elbows and it all happens in the blink of an eye so there's that element of it where a jackal's getting into a position where it's really hard to remove him without being illegal in your clear out because he's probably not in control of his body weight. He's in a position where his, his back is almost onto the ground and the only way to clear him out is being a missile, coming from the side, crock rolling him, which technically is against the laws of the game because you're collapsing the, the rook immediately. The second part is that the re like the referees, it's so hard to referee this. And it's easy for us who watch the game because we're looking at it from a nice angle, probably get a replay. We're not at pitch level. There's no one obstructing our view. We're not trying to watch for the offside line. We're not trying to watch for multiple different infringements. So if, if they miss the jackal's hand down immediately before he gets on the ball, it's understandable. So potentially the referee needs a bit of help. I don't know if you have a breakdown referee. Um, and then the third bit is definitely, I agree with you, the, some of the clearouts are just blatantly illegal. And, and we've got to the point where I think referees want quick ball so much and teams want attacking ball so much that we're kind of turning a blind eye to stuff that is dangerous like there's I don't know there's obviously a bit of chat that oh, the breakdown is the most dangerous part of the game World Rugby have done studies on that and it shows that actually the incidence of injuries at Rooks which are, there are so many of is considerably lower than say the tackle um, and it's not actually as jarring when you look at the numbers um, on their own but certainly we've seen recently like even Josh van der Freer is out for the rest of the season his, his groin went he was cleared completely from the side by a French player right in front of the ref um, and that French player landed on top and kind of he, he did the splits almost on top of him um, and his groin came away so that kind of shows the, the danger of it obviously Dan Levy jackling recently uh, where he was over the ball and uh, Scott Fardy kind of steps away from the side of the rock and an Ulster player is really coming in with a lot of pace not really controlling themselves um, and lands in on his knee as he's kind of getting rolled over to the other side um, shows the danger again of it there was a French player uh, Etienne Dussart yes from Grenoble, Grenoble yeah, that's right. I watched it. It was a horrific yeah. one, yeah. yeah horrific, who got yeah. crock rolled? Yeah. Um, and the laws of the game say you got to stay on your feet and, and try and contest the ball at a rock. Whereas the crock roll, I know Ben Ryan's a big yeah. um, leader of that kind of cause against it. But you're essentially just rolling them onto the ground. You're collapsing it yourself with with your body weight. Um, but there, sometimes that's the only way to remove a jackal if you want to keep the ball. Like you've sometimes the only solution is is being illegal almost. Um, so there's loads of different bits to it. Um, and I just kind of feel for the referees because it's easy for us to point this all out. But for them, um, 
both having demands for quick ball from their referee managers um, and allowing the game to flow um, and also just noticing everything is really hard to do. Yeah, allowing the game to flow, I think, is key as well in uh, a lot of the leniency shown towards attacking players or players that are trying to rid a rook of the jackal in the sense that, as you point out, attacking very often attacking teams could be penalised at nearly every breakdown. And if that was the case, there is literally no flow to the game at all. It's a game of penalties, it becomes like. Yeah, and yeah, defense- for, for a while, until obviously then everyone adapts. But the problem is, yeah. you know, the, those referees who do well and get the big games um, and the ones that get the favourable, you know, reports in the media are the ones who let the game flow. You know, so it's, it's catch-22 and they, you know, unless it comes... You know, unbelievably hard line from from World Rugby and the referees that this is something they're going to stamp out. This isn't the time to do it. I mean, you know, we don't want a massive change in the game going into World Cup and mm. and inconsistencies. But I think the game has already gone down the road of you know high ball and play, uh, let the game flow, make it entertaining, and definitely there's a there's a tendency to favour the attacking side because that's that's what you need to do um, to to create those high ball and play. Um, minutes type game so I don't see anything changing until the World Cup potentially after that um, they may have a look at you know both sides of it the jackal and the clean out um, but if you know if, as Murray says if that's where the if there's not a high incident of injuries there you know that's not going to be a priority the priorities and, and also if it's, if it's allowing the game to be attractive and you know big TV contracts and, and bums on seats they're not going to go after that they'll go after the tackle area which is obviously you know causing more injuries and more topical mm. Do they did in one stage in South Africa, didn't they? In the Varsity Cup, they had two refs on the pitch. Yeah. Not sure how those draws went, but I'd like to see it again. I just think it's so so hard. Like, the offside line is another thing you could talk about. Yeah, it's really And cool. how tricky it is because they're watching the jackal and then it's a matter of inches, but those inches make such a difference. And it is now, Bernard, becoming the offside line. Like, it, at the start, you kind of yeah. go, oh, that's just people <laughs> appealing against their team, getting shut down defence, but they're just creeping, aren't they? Yeah, it's... it's um I'd say it's a meter further up than it was a year ago. Yeah, you know, in general, <laughs> like a rising sea level. Yeah, there. yeah, and because everyone's bringing line speed now, the refs are afraid of they. You know, just because you get off the line quickly, they, you know, um, they don't see. They, they're kind of think, oh well, just they've got, they've really sprinted rather than actually where they started from. And uh, I think the big one as well is you see guys who jump jump the defensive defensive line. They realise they're offside. They come back a little bit. And then they go again, but because mm. they made a little effort to come back, but they never get back on side. Then you get some wrong calls. I mean, uh, I watched a sale game last weekend and, and uh, there was an interception. The guy actually wasn't offside, but because um, he got interception, the ref thought he was. It's, it's very hard. It's it's very hard. Like even with, with replays, um, it's it's difficult to be really clear on it. So I can understand why refs and touch judges don't want to call it in um, unless they're absolutely 100% sure, but it's making it harder to attack. A key weekend coming up in the Pro 14 for three of the provinces. Uh, Leinster are already home and hosed in terms of uh, sealing a home semi-final. And we'll touch upon them in a moment. We'll do it chronologically to keep the uh, wolves at bay. Sometimes get abused for <laughs> uh, favouring one province over the other. Um, Munster are in action first away at Benetton. That is at seven o'clock on Friday night. Um just want to touch upon Ronan O'Marney firstly, uh, you know, calling time on his career at the age of 29. He mentioned how he was heartbroken, but in a sense took some solace from the fact that he was confident the medical team and himself had done absolutely everything possible to get him back on the pitch consistently and it just couldn't happen. 
21 tries and 70 appearances. He was Munster's joint top scorer a couple of years ago. And just one of those freak injuries that really derails a career, like a dislocated ankle and a broken leg, wasn't it? So it's... I mean, what more can be said about it? Really, it's just unfortunate for him. Um, and, you know, a fine servant for Munster, he mentioned, a bit, he mentioned obviously his pride in playing for his native province and running out in front of his friends and family. Simon Zebo would have been very friendly with him. He had a nice uh, message for him on Twitter. But Murray, maybe just uh, to briefly look back on his, on his career and, and the contribution he made to Munster and also just the unfortunate nature, really, of the injury yeah. that kind of ended it. Yeah, some lovely messages from some of his fellow pros and, and former teammates, um, including one by Mike Sherry, which I thought summed it up. He he was an amazing talent in Castletroy College. I remember seeing him play, he must have been in fifth year, and he was incredible, stepping lads, scoring amazing tries. Uh, a guy who, you know, you would have said he's definitely going to be a superstar. But then he had to work really hard for it. He had to kind of be patient. He didn't quite get his opportunities straight away. Kept battling away, played really good rugby with, with Gary Owen and and really earned his opportunities and became one of those guys in a squad who, while they aren't the superstar name and um, they're not on the billboards or the posters, they're so vital because when, say, an international is away, when your key third is gone, he's going to step in and do a really good job. As you say, took his chance in that 2016-17 season. When he got injured, he was absolutely superb, having the best season of his career and, and was just unfortunately cut down. Um, so it is sad to see. Uh, but he, because he's been such a hard worker in his rugby career and because he's battled so hard to to get in a position to do things like scoring against the Mary All Blacks in Toma Park, which was a really memorable game for all Munster fans and, and certainly for him, you, you'd think he's going to be a success in whatever he does next um, and a really nice guy as well. And and yeah, it's it's really sad to see, but he can certainly be very proud. You know, Not too many people get 70 Munster caps and score 21 tries. So he's done a lot in, in a career that unfortunately was cut a little bit short. Yeah, looking ahead then for Munster uh, at the weekend, obviously it emerged during the week as we kind of suspected that Joey Carberry is um, a serious doubt for Saracens and we touched upon it last week, Bernard, on the podcast about basically picking your guy and giving him a run of games now, whoever is to deputise a 10, chances are it'll be uh, Tyler Blyndell. Um Looking at the victory over Cardiff, like what do you make of that situation now is... is it's still blind out for you. Like. Yeah, it has to be blind out for me. I think um, you know there was the game against Cardiff was was tricky in patches, but they got through it. And um, I, I definitely think he's the man. They're going to need you know uh, a really experienced, smart, composed uh, ten um, against against Saracens, and um, I think he's he's in pole position now. And I think you know, but they've got to just. You know he's got to play this weekend, and he's got to get through it. Obviously, the worry about him is obviously that will he break down. But yeah. um, if Joey's out, he, he he's definitely the for me the next guy up. Mm. This game is really interesting, just for the Benetton story yeah. as well. I think every neutral is want, going to want them to win. They've been the story of the Pro 14 season, and it used to be the case that you could go and rotate players as Monster will this weekend in Italy and still beat Treviso as they were then. It's a very different story now. They've been exceptionally um, consistent. And you saw even last weekend, like they've developed so many different tools. Against Leinster, they were able to almost out Leinster Leinster. They had 26 minutes, 26 seconds of possession. Obviously broke them to to draw the game with the, the last, it was the 29th phase of, of attack. And actually they made Leinster set a new record for tackles completed in the Pro 14. 306 tackles, um, smashing the previous record actually by about 30 tackles. So they have that, they can play to wit. They have Monte Ioani and, and Ratuva Taviar on the other wing, two guys who 
they're capable of the the razzle dazzle um, a really good squad now as well they they themselves can can make changes and certainly how they survived the six nations period was really impressive kieran crowdy's done a great job with his his recruitment even a, you know there's a number of examples duvenach at nine has been really influential so i think personally i'd like to see them the win again this weekend i'd love to see them in the playoffs and i mean you never know Do you know connacht won not so long ago in this competition and Benetton's consistency should actually give them a bit of confidence coming into to the run-in and what a story would be uh, even if they don't win it just for them to be in, in the playoffs and competing just brilliant for Italian rugby and just for a really good squad of players Yeah, off the field for Munster a uh, big week obviously in the sense that uh, Johan van Graan has extended his deal uh, by a further two years uh, I suppose the next thing Murray is getting their um, their ducks in order alongside him. Uh, it's interesting in that uh, statement from him, uh, or sorry, when he was speaking at the press conference, rather, where he mentioned uh, his backroom staff and how there may be a, a need to bring in new personnel just to freshen things up and keep things ticking over in order for Monster prog- to progress over the coming years. Um, obviously, they're yet to tie down Jerry Flannery and Felix Jones. Uh, how do you see that unfolding? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens next in that regard. JP Ferrer, defence coach, is obviously contract until 2020, I think it is. Um, and Van Gran extending his own contract out until 2022. So they're set in stone. Flannery seems to be doing a, a really good job with the, with the forwards and, and that sort of things. And Felix Jones is spoken of so highly by the players. Honestly, they, they rave about his work ethic, his attention to detail. Joe Schmidt is another fan of his. The attacking side of the game, I think, is always the big talking point. We've discussed it so many here, so many times here at Munster, and it's difficult to know exactly whether what we're seeing from Munster in attack on the pitch is Felix Jones leading it. More likely, it's Johan van Graan's game plan because he's coached attack with with the Springboks yeah, before. Yeah, for sure. That's the problem for Felix is that maybe his role might be just first phase backs attack. Yeah. Or, um, and that was his frustration under Razio, I think, slightly, that yeah. he wasn't able to get his philosophy through. Yeah, and that's, that's a challenge. The fact that he's a, you know, he's a head coach who has been responsible for attack would make you feel that that's generally the area that the coach will, will I suppose, spend most time around. And, and um, I think, for, you know, I, I'm actually surprised that Van Graan signed up for that long. Um, there's definitely rumours that Razio would have been on to him to come back to South Africa. So I think that's a... Um, a, a really good uh, piece of business by Munster um, and you know I think as I agree with Murray I think that um, you know Jerry and, and, and Felix are highly regarded um, internally and um, it'll be interesting to see what he adds I mean if he already has a defence coach that he brought in he's not going to add a defence coach you'd imagine um, so in terms of what member of staff or what area he looks to, to add to um, it would be interesting it's unusual probably that they didn't sign them all up en masse hmm. or whatever the reason for that is maybe the contracts are signed just going to release at a later date but uh, it's, it's, they're, they're still in the hunt in two competitions um, so the you know, Munster could end up having a phenomenal season and uh, nothing will change but maybe they're just holding off to see what they need in the summer to, to add to it obviously a lot of coaches will come off contract post-World Cup um, and they might they might even wait till then and see yeah and there is some chat that they are looking and, and they are a few even helping them in that we don't know exactly what for that's what we're waiting to, to find out. But certainly that attacking side of things is where they've said themselves repeatedly, Van Graan himself as well, that they need to evolve. You see glimpses of it, like this, the winning try for Keith Earls, where the catch pass was the key part of that. And that has let them down in previous seasons, um, particularly in those big games where they haven't maybe taken those chances. I think that was exciting to see. And I guess maybe 
developing that a little bit further out the field as well. So they're not just box kicking and territory focused. Yeah, I think it takes a while to build that skill set. Like, so I, I know Kieran Crowley reasonably well, and he said his first two years in, in Treviso, I mean, he couldn't actually really do anything because he didn't have the skill set or the fitness levels to actually play yeah. a game a different way. So um, they've they pushed hard on those. They, they forgot about short-term results to try and you know build those that, that fit inherent fitness levels and, and skill set to be able to see the type of performance we saw against Leinster last weekend. Munster, let's be honest, under Razzi, you know, it was a very uh, safe, basic pressure game plan. And if you're doing that, potentially you're not, you know, you're not working as hard or, or focusing on the, the other side of the game. So for Felix Jones, you know, it's not a case just going in and having a, a, an attacking philosophy. You need a skill set and the understanding to build it up. It's like, look at Pat Lamb, you know, he brought in as a Dave Ellis, you know, mm. he worked hard on the skills and it took a while for for them to be good enough to be able to play the type of game. So, you know, while Felix has been there a long time, it depends on where the focus has been in terms of time allocated to skills as well. Um, and also if players feel, you know, that what, you know, the, the exercise they're doing aren't going to be used on a Saturday, it's not the same. So um, if, if their ambition is to play a more all-round attacking game under Van Graan, um, well, I think that'll just take a little bit of time to, uh, to bed in and it'll evolve. Yeah, uh, Ulster are, uh, work, are going away to Murrayfield just over half an hour after that uh, Munster game kicks off. And uh, interestingly enough, Dan McFarland has described it as a knockout game, essentially. It's uh, an absolutely key encounter for them. And I suppose like maybe the, there might have been a hangover on the back of the soreness of that Leinster defeat last weekend, but they were pretty woeful. And this is a, you know, they're facing relatively formidable opposition this weekend. It's a really tough ask for them, you'd have to say. Yeah, Edinburgh really in the hunt there as well and in, in the same conference as well. This is a really difficult task. And you do fear that maybe that Leinster game was the emotional peak of the season and it's going to be hard to ever really get back up there again. It's a really difficult run-in they had, to be fair. The performance last weekend against Glasgow was a worry. The scrum was pretty much butchered. They lost seven of their 15 lineouts. There was a couple of overthrows. There was some mistransfers. There was some really good Glasgow defence as well. But if you're losing that much platform in the game, you're really going to struggle. Unfortunately, they didn't take a couple of their chances again. There was a an incident, I guess, pretty similar to Stockdale's. Um, Luke Marshall was put through by a lovely bit of work at uh, Stockdale offload to him but Tommy Seymour brilliant work rate gets him and punches the ball loose over the trial and so they missed that opportunity at a key point in the game um, and those key moments went against them there was a mall just before half time where Adam Ash got in and, and turned them out and, and slowed down the ball got onto the ball carrier they turned it over and then Glasgow scored at the other end so it was just compl- it was a contrast to the physical intensity of their performance against Leinster um, and, and it is a bit of worry. They've lost Will Addison as well for the rest of the season. That spark that he gives them is definitely going to be missed. Rory Best is still out with his ankle. We're waiting to see um, exactly what how, how, how he is. Um, but it is a worry. I, I think Edinburgh at home with so much on offer, I don't see them missing this opportunity. Yeah, they're only three points behind Ulster, one point behind Benetton. So it's absolutely must win for Edinburgh as well. What Murray mentioned there, Bernard, about the emotional peak and, and maybe there's an, an element of a come down after that, particularly in defeat where it ha- you've put everything into it and it just didn't quite pay off. From the coach's perspective or the coaching staff's perspective, how do you, you rectify that and ensure that they are at the it's right big, emotional pitch this weekend? Yeah, it's very difficult. And also they, they followed up with two away games. You know, so yeah. um, you can rely. You can sometimes use your home 
home patch as a way of reinvigorating, getting back on on, on track. Um, they've had to go away to Glasgow, which is obviously very difficult. Been very poor, you know, suffered a heavy loss, and now they've got to try and, I suppose, rally and go to, to Edinburgh, which we know the season is is very difficult. And then they got a home game against Leinster, but it might be out of their hands potentially at, at that stage. You know, if if Edinburgh have to go to Glasgow on the last day, um, you know, Treviso if, beat, if they beat Munster, they're going to pass them out. So um, it's it's very difficult for Dan. Um, I I think that they're not going to get back to the level of that Leinster game this season. It's just can they do enough to get into the playoffs and, and qualify for Europe directly? I think you know. Um, but when you say they can't get back this season, as I don't think just they will. The, I, I just think that was a that was an ideal one-off um, where you're going to the Viva Stadium. It was a sellout. Um, your underdogs. They had a game plan that um, you know that they'd worked on probably for longer than Leinster, given how many players for Leinster were using. Uh, and it was a bit of an ambush, and it nearly worked, but it didn't. And then there's the, re- the disappointment. Like, I don't think Ulster are... I, I don't think Ulster are at the same level as a Leinster or Glasgow. Um, maybe a little bit behind Munster at the moment, but potential to pass them out. Uh, maybe a little bit behind Edinburgh. You know, and, and that's that's just what... I, I think this year they got a, a group with Leicester, Sars, uh, Scarlets, who were poor. You know, um, and they got out of it, which is great. And they had a massive performance against against Leinster, but I don't think that's their level. I think that they overperformed that day. Um, now I think they're on a team on the right track, but I don't see them as contenders to win it. To be honest, that's mm-hmm. that's my own opinion. I think that was their cup final um, for this season, and, and I think it'd be a really good achievement for Dan to to get them into the playoffs. Um, but it's hard to replicate that level of um, of intensity again, given the fact that they're not used to it. Yeah. You know, given the fact that they haven't been in knockout rugby in Europe for um, for that, a consistent period of time, um, and I think for them to get into the playoffs again uh, would be a really good achievement. Their squad still need you know reinforcements and and for some of those younger players to get more experience. Yep, we'll see how it pans out. Obviously, with Edinburgh going to Glasgow the following weekend and Glasgow looking for a home semi in their own right, it, it might yeah. still be in. Uh, yeah, it might be. Glasgow are doing everything they can to avoid Leinster. You know, <laughs> yeah. That's their. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, they they, they want to meet them in a final in in Celtic Park. Uh, Game of the weekend, Saturday, three o'clock. Uh, Connacht against the Blues. <sighs> Unbelievable game and um, a fairly straightforward proposition for Connacht in this in one sense on paper in the sense that it, you know win and you're in a, you're in the semi finals you qualify for the Champions Cup. The only problem is you're playing against uh, your conference rivals who despite losing last weekend are in fine fettle in their own right. Yeah, the Cardiff Blues have been really enjoyable to watch all season, really. It kind of took a while to get motoring in terms of they had a few narrow uh, misses early on in the season, but their set-piece attack in particular is just so lethal at the moment. You saw it against Munster a few times, um, and they can score um, in really rapid kind of flurries of attack off the set-piece or off a, off a turnover. They have loads of players who are well-suited to that. So I think this is going to be an exciting game, particularly with the, the stakes um, uh, on offer. I think for Connacht, again, last weekend was probably a bit of a worry. They, the relief was obvious at the final whistle, that 6-5 win over in Zebra, but um, their wastefulness in the Zebra 22 was really off the charts. They had that issue against Glasgow when they lost away, but this time around there was such a variety of different issues when they got into that scoring zone, just letting off the pressure, not even building through penalties. Um, I think that'll be the biggest thing for them to work on. They're going to have to be clinical because Cardiff Blues scoring power uh, really can't be underestimated. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I'm actually working for the game uh, for media, and I, I picked out 
um, Connacht, or Cardiff's blue strengths and it was around that set piece attack and I, I downloaded a lot of games it was actually the hard part was actually picking out what to leave out I mean they, <laughs> uh, their line out um, success rate um, from in that middle middle part of the game um, and being able to convert those into direct tries without, a, without another phase um, has been phenomenal and, and definitely Connacht will have to, Connacht's defence coach um, will be making sure that the, the second team run a lot of those this week and they're very clear about who takes who because there's a lot of decoy runners there's a lot of deception and they've got some game breakers then when they get behind you they generally score um, with some really good support lines so I think it's a dangerous game for Connacht I thought Cardiff weren't bad in, in, in Munster um, they've been very good the week before when they hammered Scarlets um, they're, they're definitely a dangerous side and Connacht I'd be a little bit worried about Connacht's form over the last two weeks the sale game they didn't really perform that well um, and then Zebra last week even though they got a win I, I thought you know, definitely the coaching staff wouldn't be um, happy that they're in peak form. But then again, if they get a win this week, you know, they're in a you know they're in a positive upward curve going into what will hopefully be the playoffs for them. But uh, I think that's going to be the most attacking-minded game of the weekend for sure because both teams want to play. Yeah, should be an absolutely fascinating showdown. And finally, uh, at the same time as that Connacht uh, Cardiff game, Leinster host Glasgow in what's a relatively important game for Munster as it transpires. Um, for Leinster, it's an interesting one. The last couple of weeks, it's like Leinster have been so good for so long that it's sometimes difficult to even ask questions about them because we know how good they are. They're still in a really good place um, in terms of being in semifinals of both competitions, home semifinals at that. And yet you look at the Benetton draw and even the victory over Ulster and the questions tend to be more so about what's going wrong with Leinster at the moment. Um, is there an argument to be made, Murray, that they qualified for the semi-finals of the Pro 14 too early in that a lot of these games now are actually unimportant for them? And how does that impact you when you reach the semi-finals of both of those competitions in that you haven't been going at full tilt necessarily uh, in that lead-up? Yeah, yeah. And you don't like disrespect guys who are preparing diligently and trying to convince coaches that whatever they de- they've deserved the chance they've been given but it must be difficult to be at peak motivation when you're already qualified through and um, you've achieved that goal uh, and trying to be as focused and sharp as you possibly can it must be tricky the obviously the Ulster game is a little bit different in that there's so much on the line there but there was that sense of slight disjointedness and some guys have been in and out and a guy like Johnny Sexton has, has barely played in 2019 really um, so there is a bit of a, a concern there in terms of getting their momentum back the quality of their players you feel will thrive in those bigger games that are coming now down the line um, but I think Munster will be the ones to gain most out of this if Leinster can can get that win Yeah Do you expect them to get the win Bernard? We'll go through predictions um, Well I need to see their team I think they need to mm. get a strong team on the pitch just with a view to Toulouse mm. um, and um I just think it's important for cohesion. You know, there was a lot, it wasn't the first choice Lens team last week against Treviso. Um, we have to take it into account. But I think Leo will look. Leo will be worried. Not worried. He'd be very respectful of of Toulouse and, and their threat. Um, he'd like to lay down a, another marker for Glasgow. You know, Leinster want to win every match, uh, so I think they'll put out a strong team. And I think they'll. I think they'll get a win. Maybe not as flashy as we you know we might like, but it'll definitely getting the right players on the field a majority of players are going to play against Toulouse will help them start to pick up again now um, and you know not as they run into finals rugby um, they're the team probably most uh, most affected by you know lads come back from Six Nations etc so you just need to get um, a little bit of continuity a bit of cohesion 
I, I think they've been in the situation so often um, they won't be overly worried about it but it's sometimes good as well not to be flying now you know and still picking up a win against Ulster a draw against Treviso um, and have you know home semi-finals to look forward to it's not <laughs> yeah. a crisis you know? <laughs> <laughs> no by no by no stretch of the imagination are they in crisis my god uh, Murray yourself will get your prediction Leinster Glasgow we'll go backwards with these in the interest of fairness yeah I think Leinster win cool um, Edinburgh or sorry Connacht and the Blues Bernard yourself Connacht just about mm. Murray yeah oh yeah yeah just about Okay, uh, Edinburgh at home against Ulster. This is going back to Friday night, Bernard. Edinburgh. I'm the same on that, yeah. And also on Friday night, the uh, earliest kickoff of the weekend from an Irish point of view, Munster away at Benetton. Murray. I'm going to say Benetton. Story rolls on. Yeah, Benetton. Cool beans. Gents, thanks a million. Pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Enjoy the rugby, Chat lads. You again. Cheers. Yes, indeed. Enjoy the rugby over the weekend. A real a pro 14 weekend we can look forward to. Andy, if Andy was here, I think even Andy Dunn would be a little bit excited for this one. <laughs> uh, thanks a million for listening to you guys at home. Again, uh, sorry for not getting around to more questions, but uh, we will we'll do a mailbag at some point. We've been promising it for a while. Uh, and enjoy the rugby yourselves at home over the weekend. We'll see you next Thursday, or if not, I suppose we'll see you in hell. Uh, <laughs> take it easy. Thanks.